Our scripture reading this afternoon comes to us from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi, uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be reading the entire chapter, but our focus is going to be on verses 17 through 21. So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect. But I Press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And now our focus, our text. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thanks be to God for his word. If you've you've been a Christian for quite a long time, and if you've been around people who pray for quite a long time, if you've had the particular privilege of listening to multiple generations of the same family lead in prayer, you'll notice something interesting. You'll notice that children tend to pray like their fathers, and also like their mothers, but particularly their, 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 their fathers. I can, rem- I can remember the first time I noticed this. My, my dad wasn't home for dinner one night, and so my mom led family devotions. And when she prayed, now she'd prayed many times before, but this was the first time I heard it. When she prayed, I heard something familiar. I, I heard the same phrases and, and lilts and cadences that I heard when I listened to my grandfather pray. Same words were used, the same, the same phrases, the same reverential tone was affected. And I could tell that she had been shaped in her spiritual development and also in her spiritual habits by someone who loved the Lord. And soon I began to hear it nearly every time I heard somebody pray. Children pray like their fathers. If their father's prayers are usually short and, t- and, and light, if the exact same prayer is used meal after meal after meal, if it's just rushed through, then children will also be careless when they pray. If, however, a father knows and loves the Lord and speaks as one who speaks to a God, he knows is listening, despite whatever strengths or weaknesses he might have, a child's prayers will reflect that as well. And as my daughter has begun to grow up, I've noticed this at home as well. The requests that I make each night, the adorations that I make each night when praying with my, do- with my daughter while she's being put to bed have now been taken up by her as she's begun to pray on her own. And you see, don't you? You see the, the, the tremendous responsibility that is, that is laid upon those who, who lead in prayer. Those who've been given this, this spiritual responsibility... To, to model what faithful Christianity looks like, we'll see fruit from their labor, either good fruit or bad fruit. And this is a reality that the Apostle Paul was altogether aware of. When he was planting the church in Philippi, and, and when he was ministering to them by correspondence through this letter, he, he knew that he was not just giving people information. He was not just preaching the gospel to them. But he was also leaving them an example. The, the, the new Christians in Philippi would have, would have watched his lifestyle carefully. They wanted to know what it looked like to lead a Christian life. They wanted to know what it looked like to follow Christ in every area of life. They, they wanted to know what it looked like to be somebody who was filled by and led by the Spirit. And so Paul was very careful about the example that he held out for them. And we see this several, in, in several places in his letters. 
He tells the Thessalonians, for example, that, that, that he had laid out for them a lifestyle that they should follow. He had laid out for them a lifestyle characterized by hard work in service to Christ. He tells the Corinthian church to follow him just like he in turn had followed Christ. But the passage we have before us this evening is quite remarkable. For not only does Paul give us a command to follow him and to follow those who walk according to his example, but he also gives us two striking reasons to do so. And if I could sum up Paul's message to the Philippian believers and to us this, this, this evening, in one sentence it would be this. Live like those who already live up to their heavenly citizenship. Live like those who look to heaven and greet it from afar like Abraham did. Live like those who who already smell like those who belong in heaven. And there there are three ways that Paul brings this message across to us. First, he gives us a positive example. He tells us to follow those who walk on on, on the right path, who walk the right way. And then second, he gives us a negative example, showing us what it looks like to walk the wrong way and showing us what the final destination will be of those who walk on that path. And then thirdly and finally, he tells us the glorious reason why we should walk the right way. When we became Christians, he's going to tell us, we didn't just join a church here on earth. No, when we became Christians, we became citizens of heaven. We became citizens of the the new Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the structure of this passage, Paul does something interesting that that actually reverses the pattern he usually sets in his letters. Ordinarily, he'll, he'll, he'll tell Christians some truth about themselves or some truth about God, the indicative, and then he'll, he'll lay out the practical implications of this, the imperative. But here in Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21, he does the reverse. He, he first gives the command, and then he lays out the reason. So that's what we'll be doing here this evening as well. We'll, we'll begin with the command, and then we'll go on to the reasons. And, and the command he gives is quite simple. Join in imitating me, brothers. Or more literally, he tells them, I want all of you together to become joint imitators of me, my brothers. He's saying all of you together, as brothers in Christ, as members of one family, all of those in this congregation who are united to Christ, this one fellowship, all of you need to imitate the the examples that Christ has given to you. Not each one of you on your own, but all of you together. And notice, first of all, that this is not a command that he gives to individual Christians. But this is a command he gives to a whole unified body. He tells them to join in this task of apostolic imitation together. Because spiritual formation, according to Christ's design, spiritual formation is not a solitary task. It's not something you do by yourself for yourself. Spiritual formation, the way Christ has designed it, is a communal task. That's why the fathers and and, and even the uh, uh, theologians today will say there's no salvation outside of the church because it's the church where Christ does his work on the hearts of his people. Individuals within a church are shaped not first of all by their personal devotions, not not, not, not first of all by their personal prayers or their personal quiet time, however important those may be, but individuals within a church are shaped first of all by their participation in the local church most notably through participation in the preaching and the sacraments, the means of grace. Paul's so keen to emphasize this that he actually comes up with a whole new word. 
Uh, the, the Greek word that it uses here in this passage isn't used anywhere else in all of Greek literature. His model for Christian, for, 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 for Christian maturity is not something that he wants individual Christians to emulate. He wants the whole body involved in this work. And now what would this look like? He tells us, he tells us, join in imitating me. What, what, what would this look like? Well, first of all, it would involve going over what Paul had done and what Paul had written. It would, it would involve looking at the kind of life that he held up as ideal, as the ideal Christian life, and then, and then imitating that. For example, let, let's, let's read again, verses 12 through 16. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, he says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those, he, he says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. In verses 12 through 16, Paul explicitly holds himself and his own mindset up as an example. He says, think like I think. And what's this way of thinking that he holds up as as worthy of, of imitating? Well, it's one that that forgets about what's behind. It's one that's ready to leave the world behind and drives forward to perfection because Christ Jesus has made us his own. We belong to Christ, he says. And so we forget about all the vain things that lie behind us and we strive forward, we push forward, we press on, he says, toward the heavenly reward that Christ holds out for us. The reward of being found in him and found in his presence and seeing him face to face. And so to be joint imitators of Paul would entail encouraging each other to walk in this way. And so if one sister sees another sister falling back into her old way of living, getting pulled back by the world, being tempted by the devil, she might come alongside her and encourage her and, and she might tell her, hey, hey, don't you remember, don't you remember the example that Paul set for us? Man, he had all kinds of great things in his former life, but he counted them all as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. Sister, it looks like you're sliding back. It looks like the cares of this world have gripped your heart and are in danger of pulling you to hell. But remember, remember, sister, that Christ is worth more than anything that this world holds out to us. So we are to be joint imitators. And I'd remind you that this is the normal way that things work in relationships. Again, especially parent-child relationships or teacher-student relationships. He's commanding them to imitate him, but only in the context of previously having told them to imitate Christ. In Philippians 2, you have that famous chapter. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which belongs to you in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There in Philippians 2 and here in Philippians 3, Paul tells us to have that kind of mind. Paul gave up a lot when he began to follow Jesus. 
And he was respected. He was influential. He was even fairly wealthy, most likely. But no matter what he gave up, and no matter what we give up, it's a pittance. It's nothing compared to what Christ himself gave up. We will never, never be able to match what Christ has first given to us. And, and the mindset that Christ holds out to, uh, that, that, that Paul holds out to us is something that he expects will become natural for anyone who follows Christ. Because he says in Philippians 2, this mindset is, is yours in Christ Jesus. This mindset is natural to your new nature. And then look what he commands them next. Also in verse 17. And keep your eyes, he says, on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says he's not the the only example they should be imitating. They should also be looking at those who have already imitated him and are living as mature Christians. And maturity for a Christian. Maturity for a Christian really means nothing less or more than having the life of Christ displayed in you. So that you take on a a Christ-like picture. So that you begin to look like your Savior. That's what maturity looks like. So not not, not only should they be looking at Paul, not only should we be looking at Paul and what he says, what he does, but we and they should also be looking at all those who have already uh, imitated Paul and are living as mature Christians. And And this is an important command, particularly for those who are young in their walk with the Lord. You should be on the lookout, he says, for godly examples. For those who, who, who in a way look like Paul, you should read the things that Paul has written about what a godly mindset and a godly lifestyle looks like, and then you should find people who match that pattern, and then you should watch them, he says. You should watch them. See how they react when things go well. See how they react when things go poorly. Young fathers, if I may just concretize this, young fathers, look for godly examples in raising your children. Young mothers, do the same thing. And young people who have just done profession of faith, be on the lookout for godly examples. Find people who love the Lord and don't mind other people knowing. Find people who who exemplify the humility of Christ. Find people who love the church, who love to worship, for whom praise is their highest joy. And, And then watch them and talk to them and imitate them. God has given mature saints to his church to help those who are immature. This is a community project. And you mature saints, there's, there's, there's instruction here for you too. You have a responsibility to show yourselves to be mature. To not be quiet in a way. To show yourself to be, to be, to be mature. To show yourself to be Christ-like. You, you need to be a guiding light for those who are less mature. They need you as much as you need them. You need to look at Scripture's instructions. You need to look at the examples of those who came before you. And you yourself need to act as an example. And this is especially important for pastors, for elders, for deacons. Anyone anyone in in, in this congregation should be able to take immature believers, new Christians, and then then point them to to the pastor, to the elders, to the deacons, and and say, you know, if you want to know what it looks like to live as, as, as a member of Christ's family of faith, look at him or him or him. Paul tells Timothy this, this exact thing. He says, he says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in piety. In a few weeks, you'll be having office bearer uh, elections. 
And the men who get selected for those, for those offices are representatives of Christ. And you need to be able to say of those men, if, if you want to know what a, what, a, what a Christian ought to look like, you ought to look at that man. See, this is how Christ's body, the church, needs to work, and everyone's got a part to play. See, see being an example is not just for elderly saints and for office bearers, but it's, it, it's actually for everyone who's got anyone watching them carefully. So, teenagers in this church, recognize that, that your younger brothers and sisters are watching you. And they're going to imitate you. So you need to be living lives worthy of imitation. You might think that your teenage years are for rebelling and making your reckless decisions, but that's wrong. Because you are examples. You cadets or kingdom seekers in the, in the later years. You, you older catechism students. You need to be setting, setting an example for those who are following you. you. You need to be looking to the word of God and listening to the preaching of that word to find out just what kind of example you need to be setting. Christ has given you this responsibility. But he's also giving you so many examples of faithful saints that you yourself must in turn watch and follow. And one of the reasons that the body of Christ needs to work this way is because there are other people out there who are all too eager to present a bad example to follow. And those examples often look quite enticing. They often look quite enjoyable, quite fun. And Paul knows this. So he doesn't just tell us to follow those who who hold up a good example. He He tells us that there are other people who do not love the Lord Jesus, who are in fact opposed to him, who want Christ's sheep to follow them. But to do so, he knows, would be deadly. These are people, he says, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Christ had told his disciples that if they want to follow him, they must deny themselves. They must take up their crosses and follow him. When Christ calls a man, he bid him go and die. The life of a Christian is the life of self-denial, and often it's a life of suffering. And Paul's already told us in Philippians 2 that we're to follow in Christ's steps. We're to have the very same mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus, counting, our, counting others more significant than ourselves. We're to look out for others before we look out for ourselves, just like Christ did. But these people here that Paul's warning about, they reject that way of life. They reject the cruciform life. And, and this isn't something that Paul takes lightly. It's not like he says, okay, they can go their way and I'll go mine and you know what, we'll just coexist in peace. No, no, no. No, no, no. Their, their opposition to the cross of Christ is a cause for Paul's weeping. When he thinks about these people, these, these, these false teachers, these brothers and sisters that have gone astray, he weeps. He has compassion for them, it seems. He's warned the Philippians about these people before, but now he's warning them even with tears. And these tears suggest that the people Paul's warning them about are in fact false teachers who walk around spreading their false teaching while posing as ministers of the gospel. They're people who claim to be Bible teachers. That's why Paul thinks the Philippians might be interested in following them. But but what they're spreading is not the delightful gospel of Jesus Christ, but what they're spreading is a perverted false gospel that brings people back into slavery to their own fleshly desires. And Paul describes these false teachers in four ways. First, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. These four descriptors help us to recognize what kind of people Paul is describing in his ancient context, 
but they also allow us to mark out and avoid those in our context that would take our minds and our eyes off Christ. The first descriptor he uses, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. And Paul's not mincing words here. He's as direct as they come. Doctrine matters, he says. What you believe matters. What you teach matters. These false teachers who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, they are headed, he says, for hell. And these are heavy words. And remember, Paul is saying this with tears in his eyes. He, he weeps over their fate. This is no gleeful condemnation, but it is an accurate one. It's what he also says in 2 Corinthians 11. Their end, he says, will correspond to their deeds. What you sow, you will also reap. This is the fate of all who oppose the cross of Christ and die in their opposition. They are opposed to Christ. They are opposed to the only one who can save them from this destruction. The one who himself was destroyed so that his people might be saved. But they turn down this Savior. They say no to Jesus and choose instead the promised destruction. So the first thing he wants us to know is that, is, is that their end is destruction. No matter how much success they may seem to have in this life, Christ has got their number. And their end is destruction. Second, their God is their belly. Everyone serves something or someone. And these teachers, they they worship and serve their own appetites, their own impulses. They do what they want to do. They're not going to submit to God's word. Their God is their belly. That's why they're so hostile to the cross of Christ and to the suffering that it holds out. They want to be carried up to heaven on flowery beds of ease, as the poet put it. They don't want to suffer for the cause of Christ. They, this, this brings to mind, doesn't it, those, those false teachers who hold out today riches as, as a reason to join their church and support their ministries. Give us seed money, they say, And you will reap back tenfold. Send us money so God in turn will send you even more money. For them, the message of Christ is a means to their own fleshly gain. They're no servants of Christ. They're idolaters. And following them means becoming like them and ending up where they end up. And then third, they glory in their shame. They love and they hold up as admirable that which is in fact shameful. They, 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 they take God's law and turn it on its head. They're, they're like the kings and rulers of Psalm 2 who say of God's law and the Messiah's rule, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God won't tell us what to do. We will make up our own rules. We will make up our own lifestyles. Our own. Uh, uh, we will set the agenda, they say. And we will celebrate our rebellion. And we see this attitude all over the place in the culture around us. I I don't need to speak at length on that. But we also see this attitude in the church from time to time. Even in the first century church, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reprimands that church because while they, they, they should have put a member under discipline for serious sexual sin, they instead accept him and then excuse his sin, glorying in their open-mindedness. open-mindedness. And here again, we, we don't need a particularly active imagination to find people claiming the name of Christ today who have the same attitude. The old word for people with this attitude was libertine. They're people who are willing enough to know God as long as God plays by their rules and not according to his perfect 
holiness. They glory in their shame. And fourth and finally, their minds are set on earthly things. Paul had told the Philippians only a few verses earlier, I press on toward the, uh, the, the, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His mind is set on heaven, on, on the will of heaven's Lord. And he's already told the Philippians, you guys need to have the same mindset. You guys need to set your minds on the same direction. But these false teachers, they've got their minds glued to the earth, as it were. They, they're... They're, they're after worldly wealth, after earthly wealth, after earthly influence. They hold up earthly rewards as, as incentives for obedience. They're more worried about what people say than about what God sees. So these false teachers, these enemies of the cross of Christ, they're not godly. They're worldly. They're not after spiritual health. They're after material gain. They love sin instead of loving holiness. And they serve their own desires instead of looking out for either God's will or the good of their neighbor. In every way, these men show themselves to be opposed to the cross of Christ. So why would they be any danger to the Christians in Philippi? And why would we need to look out for them today? Well, it's because though they're contrary to the cross of Christ... Their message and their lifestyle appeal to the remnants of the flesh that still live within us. See, in our weak moments, aren't we also tempted to glory in our shame? Not just to justify ourselves in our sin. We always do that. But then also to say, you know, maybe it's not so bad after all. I mean, how many high school students here, or former high school students here, haven't done just that? You want to fit in. And let's not lie to ourselves. Adults do this too. You want to fit in, and so you try to convince yourself that what you're, what, what, what you're being pressured to do is actually better than the way of life that God holds out for you. It certainly feels good. And don't we often find ourselves excusing the way that we set our minds on earthly things, on earthly security, on earthly contentment, on earthly happiness? How many businessmen here haven't been tempted to cheat just a little or, or, or fudge the truth just a little to make a significant profit? And, and when we walk in that way, and let's not lie to ourselves, when we walk in that way, we also look for teachers and scholars and friends who will excuse our bad behavior. And so Paul's warning here is real. Those who would accept our sin and even glory in our sin... They feel like good company sometimes, but watch out, he says. Their end is destruction, and everyone else who walks in their paths walks along the path to hell. And so, beloved, look out. Look out and avoid such people. And for the sake of your souls, don't follow them. But Paul brings us back again to his command now. He told us in verse 17, walk this way. And there he gave us examples to follow. Then in verses 18 and 19, he gave us these counterexamples. These people, they're enemies of the cross. They hate Christ. Make sure you're not walking in their footsteps. And now here in verses 20 and 21, he wraps things up with a glorious 
crescendo. He brings us, as, as, as it were, from, from hell to heaven. That's why the ESV starts this verse with, with, with the word but. But our citizenship. There are, there are people who are all about this world. They love the things of this world. They love what this world can give them. They're all about this world. Their eyes are cast down. They're after this world's passing riches and influence. But, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of heaven. And therefore we ought to walk as he walks. Paul's got his eyes fixed on heaven as they ought to be. It's his home. It's his glorious possession in Christ. And you understand that if you belong to Jesus, the same is true of you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are found in him alone, if you believe in him for your salvation, then heaven is yours and you are heaven's. If you are a Christian, you are a citizen of the celestial city. You're like Abraham, looking to the city to which you belong, a city whose foundation, a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God himself. And knowing that you belong to that city, even while you are here on earth, you greet it from afar because you long for that city. Because that's where your Jesus is. Understand that this is why Paul in, in Colossians chapter 3, and why don't you turn there with me if your Bibles are still open. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, he says to us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is no longer wrapped up in the things of earth. You have died and your life is hidden, not here, but there with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, if we're citizens of heaven, we're supposed to do what Paul says next in Colossians chapter 3. We're supposed to put to death, therefore, what is earthly on us. We're supposed to put to death sexual immorality. We're supposed to put to death impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it all to death. Get rid of it. Because we don't belong to that anymore, and that no longer belongs to us. We belong to heaven. And so heaven's ethic ought to define us. In these you once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Put away anger, put away wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your your mouth. Don't lie to each other. Christ never lied. Christians should never lie. We are united to an unlying Christ. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. And because Christ is in all, and because we are united to Christ who is in heaven, he tells us, put on then as God's holy ones, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You are united to a forgiving Jesus. You also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another. Here again you've got the community, the, 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 the community who is together communing with Christ, communing also together and working for each other. Uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what it looks like to have your eyes fixed on heaven, to have your mind fixed on heaven, to be a citizen of heaven. There's this saying that's commonly used, even among people in the church. So heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Paul says the exact opposite here. The only Christian who's really going to live up to his calling is the one who sees his place more in heaven with his Lord than on earth. That's where his Savior is. That's where his life is. That's where his head is. Where the head is, the body also must go. Therefore, he is free to no longer seek the things of the earth. He's free to forget about his own reputation. He's he's free to forget about his material gain. He's free to serve Christ and serve his church. The most useful Christian is the one who's got his sights set, not on earth, but on heaven. And then Paul just cranks up the crescendo even more. And from it, from heaven, we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. He said the end of those false teachers is, is destruction. But our end, our, our end, what we're working toward, what we're headed toward is salvation. Christ will come, he says, and he will be our savior. Yes, he's already saved us from our sins, but we still struggle, don't we? And we still groan. And even the saints in heaven under the altar still cry out, How long? How long? And so we wait for this Savior. This Savior to whom we now look for everything we need for body and soul. He will then transform our lowly bodies. And we feel the lowliness of our bodies, don't we? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Beloved, there's a glory awaiting you that you can't even imagine. There are some in this world, many in this world, most in this world, maybe, maybe even, who, who want you to glory in that which is far from glorious. But true glory is waiting. And it's not a glory that can ever pass away. It's Christ's own glory, immeasurable and unspeakable and eternal. And he's going to do this transforming work that he promises to do by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Because one day, one day every knee will bow. Every knee. Not just the baptized knees, not just the Christian knees, but one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, all things will be subject to Christ. Now, if you have lived every day of your life for your own desires, for your own promotion, for your own benefit, that day will bring you no joy. You will hate that day. You will rue that day. You will weep on that day. But if you have lived your life on earth as a citizen of heaven, 
who strains forward to that which is ahead and above, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man, that day will fill your heart like it's never been filled before. And so I urge you to not wait until that day. Don't wait until that day to bend the knee to be subject to Christ. Find those who know him. And find out about that Christ. And then follow them and walk as they walk. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Who did not shrink back from the pain and the terror and the horror of the cross, but who made himself nothing so that he might give us everything. Father, we ask that the mind of Christ would be ours, not only in word, but in deed. That people might know this church to be a church which not only proclaims the name of Christ but also displays the the glory and the wonder and the beauty of Christ and the things that we do and the attitude that we have when we endure hardship Father may we endure hardship as Christ endured hardship may we look to a God who is able to save our souls and we are blessed with blessings, may we be ready at any moment to hand those over to those who are in need, knowing that Christ also gave up a tremendous amount to save those he loved. Father, our eyes, we admit, our eyes are often downcast. They are often glued to this world and to the things of this world. The God of this age has the God of this age has influenced our minds more than we'd like to admit. And so we repent of our idolatry. We repent of all the ways and all the times that we have put other things ahead of you. Seeking our own promotion instead of yours, seeking our own our own good instead of the good of the the body to which we belong. Father, we ask that you would make each one of us examples for those around us. That they may see our good works and and not only glorify our Father who is in heaven, but also, also seek to imitate us and become more and more like Christ. Father, I thank you for the, the office bearers that you have given to this church. Men who seek not their own well, well do, uh, well-being, but, but the well-being of, of Christ and of his church, men who, I thank you for the men here who, who give sacrificially, who give hours each week for the kingdom of Christ, and who consider it no great loss. Father, may we all for, follow such examples. May we love those who hold out those examples. 
And may we all be knit together in following the example of Christ and adoring our Christ and worshiping our Christ together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.